choice I was given was go into the city or into the bush. And I had been living in central London, so the idea of the city didn't appeal. So I thought, well, I have no idea what the bush is at all. You know, I didn't know. And I was just told to bring a backpack and a sleeping bag and uh, a foamy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Webcast. As always, I am one of your Webcast podcast hosts. I am Dr. Shauna Pandya, a Canadian physician with an interest in rural and extreme environments and in space medicine. And today we have a very special edition um, of Webcast with you. Today I have a fellow EC50 with me. So EC50 uh, recognizes Explorers Club members um, who are doing um, amazing, world-changing things that you should know about. So today with me, I have Dr. Alicia Coulson coming into us from London, and she is one of the EC50 for 2022, and her work is in archaeology and ethno-history. So she is an archaeologist and ethno-historian by background, working with competing scientists. She has collaborated with Indigenous peoples, NGOs, and governments in Canada, the UK, US, and Antigua. Her mission is to help us better understand our past. Her expeditions have taken us to Namib Namibia, Iceland, and beyond. She practices citizen science. She has published extensively. And today we're going to have a conversation about where her expeditions have led her, what she has learned, how she got into this, and especially a focused discussion on mindsets and understanding each other. So Alicia, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you. Hi, welcome everyone and welcome uh, Shauna. It's great to see you and chat. I'll see I mean visibly talk, that's what I mean. But it's good to chat, I'm looking forward to it. This is gonna be great. So Alicia, you have such a wonderful and storied background, um, but your background is also quite unique. Not everyone is an ethno-historian. Um, not everyone has done the work that you have done. So can you tell us, is this something that you knew you wanted to do from the start? Did you grow up when you were a, a child saying, hey, I wanna be an ethno-historian or what led you to this path? Um, actually, what was funny, I grew up wanting, my dad is a historian, my mother's an anthropologist. I grew up thinking, you guys spend time in archives and you do talk to people, but I'm not sure about the archive because they're dusty. I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to them. And I figured I'd like to do something outside and I thought archaeology looks interesting. But I didn't pick up the ethno history until I was doing my PhD. My supervisor, I met him and he said, Well, it was the first time I met him. I'd already applied and I'd got in and the first thing he said was like, I think you should do ethno history like me and I was thinking Oh, okay. Not, no, I like history. It sounds different. Well, you know, and, but as you know, when your PhD supervisor suggests something, you generally go, uh-huh. <laughs> not really a suggestion, <laughs> is ones. it? <laughs> no, not really. But actually, I think he, he, he pretty much knew I liked reading historical documents and I was interested in sort of dealing in that gap between archaeology and history and up to today. Sort of, and so let's, yeah, let's talk about so that. I thought, so yeah, for, well, okay, yeah, I, like, so I made sense, okay, fine, I'll go along with you. You are my PhD supervisor and you will be marking my work. <laughs> exactly, you're, yes, so you're okay. voluntold essentially to become a, an ethno-historian. Yeah, yeah. And, 
So for yeah. those of us who don't really um, aren't familiar with the term, can you explain to us what exactly it means to be an ethno-historian? What it really means is you're dealing with, uh, going from the archaeological record and the historical record, you're dealing with sort of the area where you've got not necessarily much documentation in the sense that we're, we're from the, the first world or tradition as the academic world where we're used to written documents. It might be oral histories. It might be, well, financial records written by the likes of the Hudson Bay archives. So you're looking at photographic records or, you know, people who sat around campfires and we all as explorers, you know, explorer types and put in quotes, like sitting around chatting. But actually we're talking, we're retelling information. So it's listening to a lot of oral information and picking out the bits, trying to reconstruct the past of the part. It's not necessarily written down, so it's not formalized, it's not on a shelf. That wow, cool? that's... That, that, that's very helpful. So it sounds like it's very much, um, there's oral, oral tradition plays a part in it and also understand, speaking to people for whom this has been, you know, their, their yes. culture and tradition. Yes. And so yes. this sounds like it involves a lot of face to face work. Definitely not the dusty archives that we, you know, you may have been <laughs> thinking of as a historian when you first started down this path. Um, and you had mentioned that background in archaeology. So at what point did you start going into the field, into what we would consider austere uh, environments? Was this early on in your career? Was it later in your PhD? No, I had actually already started as, I was already an archaeologist when I started becoming an ethnohistorian. So I had started doing field work as a uh, as an archaeologist, as an undergrad in those sort of after field school, which was in the first year. And so I had, oh, wow. uh, we had to do 84 days of field work according to the UCL. So it meant that I, well, I suddenly realized, all oh, crumbs, I have to do some field work. And I rang up a family friend, actually, of my grandfather's who jokingly said, oh, would you like a job? You should bring me up. And I think he thought he was flippant. But I was just like, oh, I'm completely disorganized. You know, something you don't. In retrospect, I'm like, I can't believe, you know, now I am so concerned with organization. But back then I was like, I didn't even think about it. And it was really quite late and it was near the end of the first year. And I was like, I'm supposed to be doing fieldwork. What have I done? So I <laughs> rang him up and said, hi, do you remember? You said that a couple of years ago. And he, I think he was from, he was in central Canada. And he's like, oh, this English person has rung me up. <laughs> so well, you had you a charming British accent. So of course he had to say yes. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that's what you could say now. But so that's, that's what happened. But I had already been going with my parents when they did fieldwork. So oh, I had wow. a good idea what fieldwork was like. And I had lived in Brazil when my dad went there to teach. And so I had a good idea what fieldwork was. From different perspectives, right. obviously. Yeah. So you'd, you'd been in the field prior. And so before taking down the academic path, where did your um, uh, expeditions with your parents take you prior to this becoming part of your career? Um, I lived in Brazil for two years. Mm -hmm. uh, that was it really, I thought at the time it was normal, but I realized actually now I know it isn't. But um, <laughs> well, you're small, so you don't really realize that. Um, and uh, I went to school there and then I came back to England, but then we proceeded to go to Portugal for three three, four months a year. And so drive through France and Spain and then there, and then my parents were doing field work again. So, and research. So, so it was just, seemed to me quite normal. 
that's what you did. But I, and so everyone I met who was a kid or a teenager, that's what, you know, that's what your parents did. But in, in now I'm like, no, that's really wasn't. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that so funny how, you know, the only universe, you know, as a kid is what you grew up with. So no matter how out there it is for you, it's like, oh, everyone just does that. Yeah. I mean, it was like, well, of course, everyone does their homework in English and everything else is in another language. And now I'm like, no, but, you know, <laughs> but that's what it was. And so, so I, I like the idea. Yeah, I like the idea yeah. of meeting other people and realizing there are different worlds and saying, how do you consider this? Why do you think that way? So for me, it was like quite normal. It was it was a natural transition to make this part of your academic career, it seems. Yeah. So. Your inter your upbringing was quite international. Did I read somewhere that you speak four languages? Is it is yeah, that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. What do you speak? Um, I speak uh, well English as we're speaking now. I speak French. I speak Brazilian Portuguese, and I speak Portuguese Portuguese. But I'd say the Spanish. I can understand Italian, and I can respond back, but I can't say anything in Italian. But I can <laughs> read it, and, I, and I can't write it, which is like, oh, I should get down to doing it. Um, I like languages. They were just, uh, a f I, I did learn German, but I'm shockingly bad at it. Um, I, I like being able to talk and, and understanding that when somebody looks at something or, or thinks about something or organizes the world, it's going to be so different. And I, I just found that really fun. I remember being a kid in southern Portugal where we we talk about oh the English are here and it's like and now I'm like do you not realize you were English but I didn't uh and we would joke with my friends who all spoke several languages as well and we're like oh and because the thing was in southern the part of southern Portugal you were in they would have the when you go to a coffee shop or a cafe or sit on the beach and do something they'd bring there'd be two menus one in English and one in Portuguese and the one in English was like all the prices were twice as high. <laughs> so we would get the Portuguese one. Ah, uh, uh, gotcha. So it was, and then we would order in Portuguese and, and then the waiter or the guy who was serving us or the lady and would look at us and go, uh-huh, and we go, and then we'd sort of flip back, oh, we're going to carry on in whatever language we feel like it. And then they afterwards they would always say, okay, you know, you guys who... And we were like, oh, but this is what everyone does. And now I'm like, no, but actually, but it, we just thought it was normal. So we play these games in languages. You know, you pick the, the you pick the grammar that you want to use, and then you slot all your words from all the other languages in. So it was it was almost an adaptive trait to to be able to pick up languages uh, like yeah. that, especially an economic advantage for sure. <laughs> yes. So I think this is a perfect segue to start talking about your work um, into uh, into understanding other peoples. And it sounds like it started maybe an undergrad with that first field expedition in central Canada. Would you say that that's kind of your segue? Yeah, I think it probably is because I suddenly, I knew I, I was sent, uh, the choice I was given was go into the city or into the bush. And I had been living in central London. So the idea of the city didn't appeal. So I thought, well, I have no idea what the bush is at all. You know, I didn't know. And I was just told to bring a backpack and a sleeping bag and uh, a foamy and that, and some clothes for <laughs> so three mysterious. months. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so I just turned up in Winnipeg and I was collected and 
went to this town called Kenora and um, I was like, okay, this is small. I looked on the map, I knew where it was. And then I was told, okay, we are going to be going into the down some river and we hope you can canoe and swim and you'll be doing and I was told exactly what I was doing and then I didn't know uh it was suddenly like I had to go and find and record pictographs and I met my colleagues in one of whom was actually Ojibwa and then it was like oh I and I had knew there were always indigenous peoples there but I think because because I'd visited a couple of times before but I realized it was there was another world there but if you spoke english you only saw the edges and it was almost as if there was a parallel world but like you couldn't somehow get in but you see the thing was i kept thinking there there must be a way in and i knew that the several worlds operated at the same time because i'd already seen it in portugal i'd seen it in spain i'd seen it in these other places when you spoke another language you saw this other world and this other world sort of opened up so i kept thinking how come we're not people aren't learning oji Cree or Ojiwa or Cree, and i could see the language is written about places on the community centers for example and i was like why aren't people learning it the way that we would learn as it's you know because i learned french at secondary in primary school so I like there's this other world there. So it came from the fact that I was accustomed to flipping between languages. And so I was like, why aren't people doing the same thing? Now I know it's a mindset, but at the time I was it was it was different. So it was like, okay, there's these other worlds. Does that answer so your question? Yeah, that's fascinating. It's it's such a keen insight. It's almost as if um, you know, it's it's like unlocking a puzzle. Um that language is the key to sometimes unlocking connections with individuals, um, with you know your experience with the world, as you just said through restaurants, and in this case with in you know connecting with other cultures. Um, so with Kenora, can you give us a sense of how remote that is? Is that what part of Manitoba is that? Northern um, Manitoba? How far is that from Winnipeg? That's actually just in in uh, if you find Winnipeg, then you drive three and a half hours east of. Winnipeg, just into the northern Ontario. Got so, you. okay, it would be about seven hours from Thunder Bay, which is on the north oh, shore wow. of Lake Superior. And it, okay. Kenora's in the north end of Lake of the Woods. So you're getting remote. You're getting to remote Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's start talking about something that you and I talked about before we started recording. Um, something that's been really central to your career and your expeditions, whether you've been in, um, you know, remote Canada, and I'm sure in your other expeditions in Antigua and Namibia, um, this you know this initial maybe outsider versus insider, this me, me versus them, until you kind of start unlocking the similarities, whether that's your language or um, other means. To me, that seems to be so central to your success as an ethno-historian and um, a really powerful message that, you know, so many of our audience will want to understand more about because we have world travelers, travelers who go to every country, every um, remote location on Earth. Um, so can you talk more about, you know, your insight into connecting with others and how, what you've noticed? 
Hmm, that's a interesting question. I think it's I try. I I know, for example, if I'm think back to the first time I was started fieldwork in in Kenora, I realized I didn't. The language was different, and I, it was very hard to hear. So I usually try and find. I know that listening is really important, and it's really hard. You can say you can listen, but are you really listening? And that information can be given to you. For example, you're asking directions, and do you, are you, you know, is it is it is it full of information, or how are they explaining? Are they using the maps, or or, or they're talking about? Now, are they visual, visually more, is, is visual information more important? So they're saying, oh, it's the third tree on the left, and then you find mm -hmm. a house. So I'll try oh. and find some way of trying to find a connection, knowing I probably like screw up brilliantly, or I have my, the leg, you know, as we say in Britain, I'll, I'll just have my leg pulled incredibly. And I'm like, okay, fine, I'll be an idiot. I'll, I'm quite happy. I'm quite happy with that, because, or is it, is it visual information that's more important than written information, or or do I have to say okay, I I really don't know, and I think if you just admit, sometimes it's a case of admitting I don't know. That's I, so powerful. Because I, I, I think sometimes we, if you've been highly trained. In a particular mm -hmm. discipline, you're accustomed to being the, the boss of that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that information, and so you generally think, "Oh, I know everything." But actually, as human beings, we can't know everything in the world. And even though I know I speak several languages, and I, you know, sometimes I'm more comfortable in, in Brazilian than I am in English, because there are some concepts that are better expressed. They just don't translate terribly well in English. And, the, and the, for example, of colors are far better expressed in Brazil, and they've got many more colors than you can. Oh, many more ways of, of saying things. You see, so in English, we'll say, we'll say blue. We'll have navy blue, we'll have light blue, but we'll uh -huh. have dark blue, but we don't have much. And there's loads of other blues, aren't there, really? Uh -huh. But we'll say sort of like pale dark blue, but that's not very <laughs> well. So I try and find ways, usually if I'm going to... Uh, speak to people who are probably from another group uh i will i'll drop my the fact that i have i'll just say look i'm just i want let's try and find some way of communicating that's that's so powerful and you know it's it, it also resonates a lot with me um i often like to say that we're speaking english but we're not saying speaking the same language um and you know you summed it up beautifully in your directions analogy you can tell me to go three blocks north, take a left, and then go four blocks east, and then take a right. Um, and I may remember that, but if you tell me, you know, hang a left at the mall, and then um, a right when you hit the um, first gas station, to me, that's a lot more memorable, whereas other people are um, wired the exact opposite. So let's take this back into your expedition experience. You know, you grew up being comfortable with other cultures, other people, when you went to Kenora, um, you did say, I say you kind of initially did feel like a bit like an outsider trying to understand this culture. How did you build that rapport with um, the, the community you were working with? Well, I realized I was actually working with several communities. It was the, there was the, the people seem to divide themselves by color. 
So, mm-hmm. uh, and I had come from, I remember being in Brazil, and in Brazil, color wasn't, everyone is every shade, as I remember the Brazilian saying, everyone's different colors. It's what matters on the inside. But, and so, but I also knew that there was a definite, in the, in the settler community, there were French Canadian, no origin, and Anglophone, English Canadian. And I was seen as British, but I kept thinking, I'm not really British, because actually, technically, I'm not. I was born here, I sound very English, but that's because I went to school when I came back from Brazil to make sure I understood English, because I forgot English. When I had oh, to wow. relearn when I, I had to relearn when I was like eight. Oh, wow. <laughs> so um, I know that you can learn an accent. So uh, I used to find it funny because people would feel funny as not funny, ha ha, but funny, strange because Canadian mm-hmm. people who are white Anglos in Canada, in Kenora would say, oh, but you're English. You think like this. And I get thinking, that's a huge presumption because you've assumed based upon the way I speak and the way I look, I'm going to be a certain, behave in a certain way and have a certain bunch of attitudes. Mm-hmm. And I know this is an, this happens the world over, but I yes. think um, what made I kept thinking here I am I'm I'm training to be an archaeologist, which is about collecting data, understanding the past, and understanding the and it means understanding the past of the of a community and a region and a nation and identity and working out who people are and usually what people like to know where they come from in order to work out where they're going to. And, and cause it makes people, people like to know who they are. That's, that's really important. And I think this also kind of sets a, us up to discuss what happened next in your career. So you, you know, you had the sense of how to communicate with people and then you use that to build your experience um, working in Kenora um, so then where did you go next? Did you um, go back to grad school? Did you go back to the field? Did you do both? And um, what were your, um, how did you build on those lessons learned? Okay, I, I, that was my first, I was an undergrad. And so it was my first field experience. So I went back to school mm-hmm. and then came back again, did some more field work and went back again. So I'd go backwards and forwards. I'd go from Kenora, like sort of Northwestern Ontario, because I was only based in Kenora. It's usually out in the back of beyond I couldn't even say oh I'm in between this road and that road and there's a river there I'm down that river somewhere and often I didn't I I knew where I was on the map but it's very difficult to explain uh to someone friends who say well where are you and I'm like well you know I went up a logging road by 92 kilometers then we turned left there's a bridge and then we went down the bridge and down this river and so it was like where you're in the back of beyond but (laughs) But it wasn't really, it wasn't someone, it was, it was from their perspective, it was back beyond. So I'd go backwards and backwards and forwards between London and Northwestern Ontario. And then I was like, well, I really, I finished my degree and I thought, okay, what am I going to do? That inevitable question, you know, when you finish your undergrad degree and go, that yep. was great. Don't know what I'm going to do. And I did. Yeah. yeah. Sort of, <laughs> I sort of thought, we all know well, <laughs> yeah, I think everyone knows it. It's like, so I thought, Yes, okay, I could do grad school, but am I actually putting off the evil day, which is another reason some people go to do grad school, I am aware of that, or do I or do I do something else? And I played around with the idea of becoming a lawyer, human oh. rights lawyer, actually. Okay. Uh, 
I, I quite like the idea, and I remember I did look into it, and I even filled out some forms, and I thought, yeah. And I had a couple of friends who were doing it, and I thought, hmm, sounds good, hmm. But I was like, I kind of like archaeology. I like the potential that it could offer. It, maybe, mm-hmm. what is it going to go down to? And I thought, I don't want to be an academic for the rest of my life, because doesn't really appeal um i like the idea of teaching i enjoy that and i and as, as a to... quick pause as a quick pause yeah. you are currently an academic yes research i'm a freelance researcher freelance researcher so you're an academic in a sense in a sense yeah in a sense <laughs> uh, in a sense so i i uh, then i thought yeah so i applied to grad school and i did a year in england and i realized I didn't really get on with the intellectual approach of the academics and I thought doesn't bode well. So I withdrew, which I know a lot of people never talk about these things. I did. And then I, um, I was looking at who do I work with? And I was like, I don't know. And, um, I talked to a couple of people and I came across this guy in, in McGill and I wrote to him and said, hi, thinking (laughs) I have no clue who he is. Hello. I like your article. Is it possible to do a PhD? And my usual, do you know who you're talking to? In my sort of, maybe I should have actually looked, but I didn't. I like the way he wrote. He talked about mm-hmm. different intellectual perspectives. And mm-hmm. so I thought, well, why not? So I wrote him an email and said, hi, I'd like to, I really like your article. Would it be possible to do a PhD, a master's PhD or something like that? And he wrote back saying yes. And I thought, well, that was pretty easy. Uh, and, um, yeah, a bit naive in retrospect. But... <laughs> I was going to say, was it, was it easy? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was actually really hard. But um, I don't know. Yeah, no. I, what was going through my head? I don't know. I just thought, well, you know, I like the way you wrote. And I thought, if you're going to have to work with somebody, you have to like the way they write and you have to... He was able to, what struck me is an article he published it in 1982. I know it's quite old, but he had three different points of view. Mm-hmm. And I thought, interesting. You've got three different world, different perspectives operating, and he'd compared them all. And I thought, I think I quite like that idea, that you could have three different perspectives being discussed in the same article. It's only 9,000 words. It's pretty impressive. So I thought, my, I might be able to learn something from this. And so to clarify, this is when when we talked about you initially thinking you were pursuing a PhD in archaeology, and then the same professor says, let's try ethnohistory. Yeah, so, so he said... So he yeah, baited he, switched. <laughs> oh, he did, because he said, oh, come in and do archaeology. And I was like, okay, yeah. So I did. I did. He's like, I'm both. You can do both. So I was like, oh, okay. He's like, you can be like me. I did archaeology. I'm an archaeologist and an ethno-historian. And he is. Well, he's and dead so now. now- he was. So that's what <laughs> happened. <laughs> so my committee was like filled out with ethno-historians and historians and archaeologists. And so now I think we're coming upon the crux of something that um, you and I have talked about um, pre- pre-recording, which seems to be the crux um, and at the heart of everything you do, which is understanding others, um, holding multiple viewpoints, and then, you know, 
build, breaking down those barriers that may exist when we hold different viewpoints. Um, you know, you'd mentioned uh, in our email correspondence that this was critical um, to you and something you wanted to talk about. So was this something that you um, uncovered further as you embarked on your career in ethno um, history? Um, it was, I uncovered it. I, it was a, one of the things I wanted to do when I came in and did as an archaeologist. So technically I'd consider myself both. And I wanted to say, okay, we've got a body of data. Mm-hmm. And we've got this thing, these things called philosophical viewpoints, which we all have. Mm-hmm. And there are different theories you know, uh, which operate within particular uh, intellectual frameworks. And I said, we know, because obviously, you know, grad school, you have to review all the literature. You've got to, you discover all these people use different points of view and they take different theories. And I said, well, what happens if you apply, you have the same body of data and you apply the same intellectual theories and frameworks to the same body of data? What happens? You get a different result. And I thought that's actually really interesting. So um, biases shape our research is, is kind of what you were, you know, discovering yeah. as you went along. Yeah. So I discovered sure. that and I said, look, it's really, and I, I was modeling it using computing. And so, oh, wow. and saying, and saying, look, this is what's happening. And I discovered when I was using something called the post-processual approach, which is really popular in archaeology, I was like, I have real problems going from the data and applying the theory and then getting to the conclusion. I can't show the connection. And my supervisor was like, well, yeah, okay, now we have to think and apply differently. So this is where, this is where, now, let's, done that, you realize there's some problems, let's rethink this and combine archaeology and ethnohistory. So that's when it sort of, because I had already been doing ethnohistory with ethnohistorians side by side, so I was looking at um, collections of tales collected by different early anthropologists or early travelers up in northern Cree, just to sort of, okay, well, what am I dealing with? How do I look at it? What do I think about? Okay, I'm trying to find a framework here. There's a structure. So that's when, it, when in a one sense, project was doing as an archaeologist sort of kill loader and went splat on the floor this is not going to work and i was like oh great wonderful what do i do you know when you're your <laughs> usual grad stuff and you're like oh my god my life is falling apart no but it's oh, not no. really <laughs> it, it, but, but technically the problem seems to be sort of driving but and then i was also i use experimental intelligent agents which are pattern matching so that would be um machine learning really so, uh, and sort of experimental AI, and I was like, oh, look, let's see if we can see lot the reason being, as a lot of the archaeologists were talking about, oh, people, images operate in combinations. You should be able to find patterns. You should, so I thought, fine, I'll test it. Since the human brain can't remember everything, and if I had 26 sites, so each of them had up to 31 images, I can't remember all of that and sort through all of that. So I thought, I'll try experimentals. Some experimental computing science should be fun. The computer scientists are like, this is great. This is fun. So we're all going to have some fun. It was actually hard work, but um, it was fun because I realized (laughs) it's all about how you collect the data. And the the importance of perspective and the structures that are influencing the questions that you ask and the frameworks you're asking, the data you're collecting is actually going to influence the outcome. Because I had negative data, 
for the for the end of the experiment with the intelligent agents. And the computer scientists were like, this is great from our perspective, but we don't think the archaeologists, all the other historians are going to like this. They were right, actually, because the archaeologists <laughs> are like, what have you done? And I'm like, well, I think it says something about how, how much data we're collecting, the, the size of the area that we consider is large, and have we actually spoken to the people who created them? No. Right. So, so you're studying with them from a biased filter without yeah. necessarily understanding all the viewpoints. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is actually telling us a lot about how we're, if I put my head as an archaeologist on, this is how we're telling us how we're thinking about, we've got to, we've got to recognize our biases here. So I actually wrote my thesis from the point of view of an archaeologist because I couldn't uh, speak because of various different reasons to the, the local communities. But I was like, we are talking to the people to whom they belong and we need to. And so I was, realized I was actually going down the track more of a sort of ethno-historian, but I still mm -hmm. know the archaeologists have got, they've got an angle. They've got, a, there's a point in some cases we will never be able to speak to the people who created them. Because it's just not possible anymore because they've died. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or there isn't a con continuation in, in the oral information. Uh, there isn't any cultural continuity. So we have to admit that. So I think I probably combined the two. But more recently, I'm doing more essay history because I know that you have to sort of chop and change. You have to move. So, yeah, it, it's, I'd say that, that research at McGill is just like, Sometimes it was just terrifying because I was like, what have you done? <laughs> oh, well, it was fun, though. Well, it's, it's fascinating because it's, it's so interesting because you started out with this intuitive um, understanding of people and then you made it so technical. Um, you know, you took computational science into understanding, understanding um, various indigenous uh, histories, various, various uh, um, cultures. Uh, and then you identify the biases. Um, like it, it's, it's such a, it, it's so interesting how you took two different routes, experiential and very, very empirical, and use them both to understand people um, and cultures better. Um, so it's it's a very, it's almost poetic in how you um, explored the same theme in two different ways. And oh, I have so, thought of that. <laughs> so as we, you know, as we get to the last stretch, um, I have a couple more questions I want to ask you. So where are you today? What are you doing with your, your work today? Where in the world does this take you? Um, no, I'm actually, I'm actually been planning an ex another ex-trip because I've been working with uh, a knowledge uh, leader, I think you call him an elder from Laxall, who invited me because he found me, I talked about him briefly in the ECAB talk, he actually found me via academia.edu and it was uh he looked he, and then he sent me an email saying hi i'd like to chat to you and i was like oh hi which is not the usual way <laughs> and we've been working together now for about a year and a bit looking at a rock painting and he's talking about what do the images mean which is really exciting because normally archaeologists and ethnic historians and everybody else have to guess based upon ethno-associated ethnographic data. So I've been working on that and we're just about to submit an article and I've been getting applying for funding to do some field work actually to, at the same, there. 
uh, in Laxall in Northern Ontario. I've also got just published with a group, uh, team of editors, uh, next issue of Exploration Revealed, which is exciting. And now we're busy sort of putting I- together, sort of identifying sort of potential people and saying, hi, would you like to write an article for the next issue? So there's no no shortage of things uh, on your list no, of things to do, is what you're saying. N- no, there's no shortage, and there's um, oh, I can think of lots of other projects that I'd like to do, and it's just like time. But <laughs> but no, uh, there are lots of things. I mean, I'm always up for going somewhere different. Yeah. And so as we as we wind up here, there's a few key lessons that I think um, our audience um, who also, you know, are, are of the expedition crowd who deal with, you know, or not deal with, who who interact with, live amongst, care for and um, provide for populations all over the world. And um, so maybe as we um, get to the last few minutes here, we can talk about key insights that you've learned when it um, comes to building bridges, um, you know, building uh, rapport, um, you know, identifying differing mindsets maybe when you first um, encounter and start living with a new culture, and then how you have, um, you know, embraced identifying different viewpoints and then building that understanding and rapport. Hmm, tough question. Uh, not easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's, um, I think listening and i just don't mean that easily i mean really listening because i think we say listen but in in often the important bits at the end of the conversation and it might seem as if the person who's talking to you especially if they're in another group that they'll leave the they'll say things repeatedly and it's the last bit it's got the important stuff and be prepared to be told have your leg pulled and be prepared to, to to realize that you have to take you can't take yourself seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I, I'm quite happy to have my leg pulled, and I know I have loads of times. And um, be prepared also to realize that your preconception may be utterly wrong. Absolutely. And you were saying that, you know, you often get uh, branded as the, the British person in the group when you, you know, you certainly feel, and by your, your background, you know, you're, you're probably yeah. more Brazilian than British. <laughs> so I think, uh, and be prepared that um, people have preconceptions about each other. Mm-hmm. And um, they may be wrong. Uh, and um, actually... Yeah, the, I think, yeah, ego can get in the way of a lot of things. And that always be realized that we can learn from the other. I mean, I've learned loads. I sometimes I think it came out of a PhD, not actually thinking I knew an awful lot, but actually I learned so much in the field and with people. And I, in ways, I learned a lot more just from the little out, sort of encounters that I had. And I mean, it sounds sort of off the cuff, flippant, really, but it's not. I think, yeah, I think I've learned, learned an awful lot just by listening and talking and watching and realizing when someone might be doing something fairly, which is, you know, like baking cake or something like that. But the, that's they're actually sharing part of themselves and I'm learning a lot and that's actually it's meant 
you, you know, the the boundaries between outsider and insider are actually loose. They're not. They're not. Um, they're not hard. And I think that's what we have to realise. And I think sometimes the literature, which you know, academic literature is great for you know, academic articles, really. But it doesn't always help us as people trying to understand and work with other people, which we're trying to do. There is so much gold in what you've said, um, and you know, I think wherever you are in the in the world, when you're interacting with another culture, you know, this is universal advice. You know, listen, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and make mistakes. Be made fun of. Um, you know, seek for those commonalities. Check your ego at the door. Um, you know, whether you're on a medical deployment um, to a remote village in a conflict zone, whether you're um, building science uh, as a ethno-historian and archaeologist, I think these are universal lessons. And so thank you very much for sharing them with our audience today. Um, this is going to be valuable for so many listeners. Um, for anyone who wants to connect with you online or find out more about your work, where can we find you? Um, uh, you can find me on my Twitter account, which is Colson underscore Alicia. You can find me on my Instagram, which is Alicia underscore Colson. Very unoriginal, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I have a website. So just sort of Google me. I'm very easy to find, actually. Perfect. Yeah. And your, your website, you were saying? Yeah, my website is actually, I think it's, uh, it involves Alicia Colson and Wix. But I can't remember exactly. I, my name might like escapes me now but it's along the combination of that you'll find it there's only one so that's quite there's only one of me perfect there you have it key lessons and insights on understanding um different uh cultures new cultures building bridges building rapport in a very um unique and uh awarded and storied career with dr alicia colson um EC50 of 2022, one of 50 explorers changing the world that you need to know about, ethno-historian, archaeologist. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciated it. It was an incredible opportunity and a big privilege. Wonderful. And we will see you next time. And listener, we will see you at the next WEMCAST podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk-taking, rule-bending and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more. <laughs>